Well, as we come to the Word of God, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, where this message entitled, Behold Your God, the Warrior. This is now the 10th message in this series where we're not working through the attributes of God as such, but we're working through various passages of Scripture where God reveals Himself in a powerful way. And as far as the Old Testament is concerned, there is no more powerful display of who God is than what we're going to consider today. Exodus 15, 1-18 is our text. And it's the song that Moses wrote and Israel sang after the Lord destroyed the Egyptian army by drowning them in the Red Sea. But this song is also the overflow of the pent-up energy that they had from their deliverance from Egypt. Uh, They didn't have time when they were Uh, uh, walking out of Egypt to celebrate that deliverance that God had given them. They were leaving in haste. And so there were were no songs. There were no celebrations. They were rushing to get their things together, plundering the Egyptians, moving on out. And then after that, just traveling wherever Moses and the Lord would lead them. And so this song is the overflow of all that they had been feeling as a result of God's deliverance from Egypt. Now they're on the other side of the Red Sea. The Egyptian soldiers are washing up on the shore. And the people let out a sigh of relief. And a song erupts around the camp. If you're there, follow along as I read Exodus 15 verses 1 to 18. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing water stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My heart's desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw my sword, my hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By your greatness, by the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, where you have made your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, where your hands have established. Yahweh shall reign forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 3 supplies us with the title for our message. And as many songs are titled, the, the titles of many songs are borrowed from the lyrics, this song could be titled, The Lord is a Warrior. This is not how we often think about God, is it? 
in contrast to the love and grace and mercy and compassion of the Lord that we tend to emphasize, and rightly so, this song and a great many places in Scripture declare God to be a fierce and mighty, not to mention undefeated, warrior. And if you'll stick with me, before we work through this song, I want to press this truth about God in your mind because this is just not how we usually think about God. And yet, it is critically important in a world in which sin and injustice often win the day. You could say this is one of the most obvious truths about God that we know, but that we rarely think about. So we need to be reminded and deepened in our understanding of who our God is. Now, to say that the Lord is a warrior is not to say that he's a bloodthirsty, battle-hardened, scar-covered warmonger. God does not launch campaigns to start fights with mankind. Quite the opposite. God is a warrior out of necessity because mankind sets itself against him. Psalm 2 is a prophecy of the future, but it really declares to us the general disposition of the human heart. It says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, the nations and the peoples and the rulers of the earth are in a constant state of rebellion against God. And at times that manifests itself in their attempts to overthrow and overpower God and his people militarily, judicially, or by other forms of oppression. The Apostle Paul identifies the natural state of unredeemed heart in Romans 8, 7, where he says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Speaking about the former condition of believers, Paul writes in Colossians 1.21, you were formerly alienated from God, hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. Now, if you ask most people, they would deny that they are hostile to God. But then see what happens when you plead with them to submit themselves to the Lordship of Christ in every area of life. The seed of this personal hostility was planted in the Garden of Eden, and it produced its first poisonous fruit in Cain's improper sacrifice, which then led to his murder of Abel. The ground, while it was producing thorns and thistles, the heart of man was producing rebellion. Genesis 6-8 to reminds us that the global flood didn't change this natural disposition, this evil heart of man. But it did clear the ground and it removed the unmitigated corruption. And yet it wasn't long after the flood that the people gathered together in rebellion against God and sought to make a name for themselves in that event we call the Tower of Babel, which they attempted to build. That was really the first of what would become every nation on the earth living in a constant state of hostility against God. And there are no exceptions to that, not Israel, nor any modern nation, including our own. Even though every nation in history has been actively hostile to God, he has not been at war with them. Think about this. The Lord has not made it his aim to subdue every nation under his theocratic rule. He has not commanded his people to engage in military campaigns all over the world. And somebody might ask, well, what about Israel where 
the Lord did indeed call them to engage in military campaigns. Well, that military campaign had a singular focused purpose. To cleanse the land from the evil and wickedness of the Canaanites and to provide it as a promised land, which, by the way, is a very small plot of land on the earth, to his people. But the promised land had borders, and Israel was never called, nor did they ever attempt to expand their borders beyond what God had provided for them. And so it is that all in history who have attempted to militarily expand the kingdom of God have been deceived about who God is and what he expects of his people. Even Jesus Christ said in John 18, 36, as he stood before Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And that reality did not change after his resurrection. You will not find any command in the New Testament that calls God's people, you and I, to engage in hostility against the world and fight for the Lord. On the contrary, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5, to For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's why the armor of God, which is explained to us in Ephesians 6, are spiritual truths and realities that gird up and strengthen the believer for spiritual battle against the schemes of the devil. So again, God is not a warmonger. He is not looking to conquer the world through military means. So what does it mean that the Lord is a warrior? In what sense is he a warrior? In this sense. Whenever mankind stands in opposition to God's purposes, he will engage the battle and defeat his enemies. Let me say that again. Whenever mankind stands in opposition to God's purposes, he will engage the battle and defeat his enemies. When God's purposes for his people stand against the will of the nations such that they line themselves in a battle array, they will find themselves fighting a losing battle against the Lord. Whenever people attempt to stand in the way of God's purposes and promises for his people, they will find themselves standing in opposition to God himself. And by that, I don't mean that they will be fighting against God's people. I mean they will find themselves standing face-to-face, nose-to-nose against Almighty God. There are times when God chooses to set aside secondary means and He gets directly involved in order to accomplish His purposes. And it's in those times that we see that God is a warrior. Consider the battle of Jericho in Jericho's, uh, Joshua 6. The city was taken not by the might and power of Israel, but by the Lord supernaturally demolishing the walls. Or Joshua 10, as Israel was fighting the ten kings of the Amorites, it, the, the passage tells us, as the Amorites fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. During the time of Judges, when the Lord called Gideon to lead his people in battle, the Lord shrunk Gideon's army down to 300 men to confront the Midianites, which counted over 130,000. Why? Because the Lord wanted to be clear that he was the one who would win the victory. In 1 Samuel 7, Israel lined up opposite the Philistines. And verse 10 says, But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against 
the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. Remember this odd account during the ministry of Elisha, the Arameans set a siege against Samaria so long that the people of the city were resorting to cannibalism. Finally, there were four lepers, people who were despised and hated, who decided, we've had enough of this. What more? What worse can the Arameans do? Let's just go out to them. Maybe they'll give us some food. And so they go out of the gate early in the morning when no one knows what they're doing. And they go out to the Arameans and they realize everyone is gone. Second Kings 7 says, for the, Lord has ca- for the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come against us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. The people didn't have to lift a finger. And the army left in such haste that they left all their clothes and all their food for the people to enjoy. Here's one more. During the ministry of Isaiah, well over 185,000 Assyrians surrounding, surrounded Jerusalem after they had already uh, overtaken all of the fortified cities of Judah. Jerusalem was theirs for the taking, And there was nothing that people could do about it. But the Lord said to Isaiah, or through Isaiah, For I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And then it says in 2 Kings 19, verse 35, Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went around and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold... They were all dead. Not one among the inhabitants of Jerusalem had to pick up a sword or a bow. Yet their enemies were vanquished. The Lord is a warrior. When his enemies set themselves up in battle array against the purposes of God, the Lord steps onto the battlefield with victory in his right hand. One of the titles for the Lord used 240 times in Scripture is Lord of Hosts, which literally means Lord of Armies. Sometimes the armies are the armies of Israel. Sometimes they are the armies of angels or the armies of heaven. This title isn't used until 1 Samuel, and it's used a number of times throughout Samuel and Kings and 1 Chronicles, but it's mostly used in the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and several of the minor prophets. And that makes sense because those prophets ministered when Israel was disobedient to the Lord, harassed by their enemies, and depending on the prophet, they were exiled. So it was appropriate to remind the people of Israel that your God, Yahweh, is the God of armies. Well, as remarkable as those accounts of Yahweh's victories are, And as prominent as his military title later in Israel's history is, there is no greater account in Scripture of the Lord defeating his enemies than what we read in Exodus. The Exodus was far more about God than it was about Moses or Israel. It was designed by God as a massive revelatory event. In fact, mark this in your mind. The the way that the Lord fights is not strategically designed to defeat his enemy. That is a foregone conclusion. God doesn't have to think about that. No, God's fighting strategy, which is different in every case, is always designed to make a statement. It is designed to reveal himself to his people and to his enemies. Beginning in Exodus 5, the Lord declares that he is about to put himself on display for for all to see and declare himself and manifest the fact that he is Yahweh, the I Am. The Lord says in Exodus 5, verse 6, I am Yahweh and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. 
I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And he says, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land, which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. And then in Exodus 7, the Lord says to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he will let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. Listen, the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out all of the sons of Israel from their midst. For time immemorial, the Lord wants the Egyptians and indeed all people to know that He is Yahweh. He is the Lord. He is the I Am. Who, as we saw last week, is the self-sustaining, all-powerful, eternal, faithful God. In fact, as the plagues are going along, as The Lord is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Most of the plagues came with a reminder of this revelatory purpose. With the first plague, Moses says to Pharaoh, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. When Pharaoh begs Moses to remove the frogs from the land, Moses says, May it be according to your word that you might know that there is no one like Yahweh, our God. When the Lord sends the swarm of flies to the Egyptians, Moses says to Pharaoh, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarm of flies will be there in order that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the land. Just imagine you walk through a, airspace that's filled with flies and all of a sudden they're gone and you can see that cloud that's what happened in Egypt well because victory is certain Yahweh's strategic focus is intent on ensuring that his people and his enemies know who he is that he is Yahweh the I am and so it is with the last plague of the Egyptians that they have been brought uh, the last plague the Egyptians have been brought to their knees and they beg Israel to leave and they, because they have learned that Yahweh is greater than all of their so-called gods who have failed to protect them. Leading Israel by a pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, the Lord uh, leads them out of Egypt and toward the promised land. But the Lord isn't done with Egypt Yet And so the Lord maneuvers Israel in such a way to, to make the Egyptians think that they're lost. Why? Because the Lord explains in Exodus 14, verse 4, and you can maybe flip, flip back, we'll read a portion of Exodus 14. Verse 4, the Lord says, Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. So taking the bait, the Egyptians changed their minds about letting Israel go. And it says in verse 6, So he, Pharaoh, made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihiroth and Baal Zephon. At this time in history, Egypt had the most powerful military in the world, and Pharaoh left no one behind. If he was going to bring back about 2 million people into the land, he needed everyone 
that he could get, especially since the Lord had already killed all the firstborn sons. Well, when Israel saw the Egyptians, they suddenly forgot everything they knew about God. (laughs) And they said to Moses, look at verse 11, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now listen to Moses' response, verse 13. So he said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by. And see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again. Forever. The Lord, Yahweh, will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the pillar that was leading Israel moved to the back of the camp to create a separation between them and the Egyptians while the Lord blew that wind which caused the water to come up like walls and dry out the land through which Israel would pass. Once they were through, the Egyptians decided they would follow. And while they were in the midst of the sea, it says this in verse 24. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Verse 29, but the, Lord, uh, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like wall to them on the right and on the left. Verse 30, then the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. The Lord showed his power over the gods of Egypt through all of the plagues that they had gone through. And then he showed his power over the military might of Egypt by drowning them in the sea. The Lord extracted his people from slavery. He freed them from bondage to one of the most powerful nations on earth. And he did it directly, miraculously, and powerfully without any question of who was responsible. Like Job, the people of Israel could say, I've heard of you from by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Now, how should one respond to such an overwhelming display of power? I would submit to you that we should respond exactly as Israel responded. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 says, when Israel saw the great power which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians, the people feared Yahweh and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. The fear of the Lord is what happens to you when you experience God. It molds your heart closer to what it should be Because you've seen him. Before these events, Israel knew God. They knew of God, but they have, but they had no experience of him. Now they've experienced him and they know that, yes, indeed, he is the great I am. So what else could they do? but sing and celebrate that God who delivered them from their enemies. Well, that brings us to our text. Exodus 15, 1 to 18. This this is a song, but it's not like any song we're used to. It lacks consistent structure. The 
stanzas as best as we can discern them are not all the same length. There's no poetry involved. And all of this points to the fact that uh, the song is a song of excitement and elation that is more ecstatic in its expression rather than formal in its structure. We'll step through this song one stanza at a time and draw out five truths of our God that call for celebration. Five truths of our God that call out for celebration. The five truths are these. Yahweh the Lord is the supreme warrior. He's the supreme warrior. Secondly, we'll see that he is the omnipotent warrior. Third, that he is the matchless warrior. He is the terrorizing warrior. And he is the reigning warrior. Supreme, omnipotent, matchless, terrorizing, and reigning. Let's begin with the first stanza, which celebrates Yahweh's supremacy. Look at verses 1 to 5. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army is cast into the sea, and the choices of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. The people here celebrate the supremacy of God by contrasting his high position with the depths to which the leaders of Egypt have sunk. Notice in the first line of the song how it says, for he is highly exalted. And then the last line there in verse 5, they went down into the depths like a stone. Some of your translations with regard to the highly exalted translates that as he is triumphed gloriously, which is certainly true, but the Hebrew literally says he has risen highly. And so it speaks to his exalted status above all things. They sang here, the horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. And so this supreme warrior is pictured as high and large, so much so that the the horse and his rider are like toys in his hands that he can just hurl however he wants. And so they sing, the Lord is my strength, which is to say that their source of power was not in their physical strength, nor in their numbers, nor in their weapons of which they had none. But it was only in the Lord, their God. And so he is their God. He is the lyric on their lips as they celebrate victory. And they sang that he has become their salvation. He is, it is he and he alone who saves and freed them from tyranny and slavery and oppression. Well, the next two lines there say, this is my God. This is My Father's God. This declares their loyalty to God. This says that they have now embraced as their own the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it is this God, their God, whom they praise and lift highly in their hearts and minds. Verse 3 again says, He is a warrior. Yahweh is His name. This is a declaration of the character of God. Literally, warrior translates the Hebrew phrase, man of war. This title for God is used one other time in Isaiah 42, which is the same chapter where the Messiah is described as one who will not break a bruised reed or extinguish a dimly burning candle. Those descriptions reflect the fact that the Messiah is gentle. And merciful. But then in verse 3 of Isaiah 40, verse 13 of Isaiah 42, we read this The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. There is no contradiction between a gentle Messiah and a warrior God. He is gentle toward his people. And he is fierce toward his enemies. 
as Yahweh, the I am, he is faithful to his promises to bless and faithful to his promises to judge. In the defeat of Egypt, the Lord fulfilled his promise to Abraham that he would rescue Israel out of bondage and take them back to the promised land. And at the same time, he fulfilled his promise to judge the nation that oppressed Israel. And now Israel was seeing these promises of God that were made 500 years ago fulfilled before their eyes. And so verses 4 and 5 of this song describe the final decisive act of judgment that sealed the Lord as the one who fights for his people in fulfillment of his, of his promises when it says there the Pharaoh's chariots and his army has cast into the sea and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them and down into the, they went down into the depths like a stone. This is the supremacy of Yahweh. He is exalted for who he is because he manifested his character by defeating the Egyptians. Consider the second stanza, which celebrates the Lord as the omnipotent warrior. The omnipotent warrior. Look at verses 6 to 10. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword, my hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. This stanza contrasts the majestic power of God with the vain boast of the Egyptians. The first four lines of verses 6 and 7 use language that speaks to God's great power. Uh, Right hand is the idiom for strength. And its display is majestic and glorious to behold. And its effect is devastating to the enemy. The greatness of his excellence there in verse 7 speaks to his splendor and majesty, which is so great that those who seek to lift themselves up to compete with God's power are literally torn down and destroyed. The word used for anger there reflects an intense, fierce anger that like a fire consumes everything it touches. And in contrast to the powerful anger of God, his enemies are like chaff or that stubble that's left over on the field after the harvest. It's weak and it's worthless and it's only good to be burned or thrown away. Now notice in verse 8 how they sing that it's the blast of his nostrils, which is so great, or, or rather that made the waters pile up. The word blast there is too strong of a translation. It's simply the word for breath or wind. And coming from his nostrils, this is an anthropomorphism, human attribute attributed to God, that refers to the exhaled breath of God. Get this, the Egyptians boast of verse 9 which is written to convey their breathlessness. You see that staccato fashion? I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. I'll be gratified. I'll draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. You can almost hear the breathlessness in their boast. In contrast to that, the Lord merely exhales. And He causes the waters to stand up like a wall and the seafloor to dry and harden. Then he breathes in and exhales. Verse 10, you exhale and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Surely 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, which says, the weakness of God is stronger than men, understates the case. God's power is incomparable. There is no competition. 
between him and his enemies. He is the omnipotent warrior. Consider the third stanza, which celebrates the Lord as the matchless warrior. Look at verses 11 to 13. They say, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed him in your loving kindness. You led the people whom you have redeemed in your strength. You have guided them to your holy habitation. Verse 11 expresses his uniqueness or matchlessness. And verses 12 and 13 explains what makes him unique. They ask that rhetorical question, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? This is not to say that there is a pantheon of gods over which Yahweh is the greatest. It is to say that the nations all have their false gods. And in light of Yahweh's nature and work, they all prove themselves to be the invention of fools. It says that the Lord is majestic in holiness, which is to say that He is gloriously set apart. To be holy, we sung holy, holy, holy this morning. To be holy means to be set apart, to be distinct. So for God to be holy means that He is utterly unlike His creation. There is no one like Him. And here He is declared to be majestic in holiness, which is to say He's not just different, But he's gloriously different. He's splendidly and majestically distinct from all other so-called gods and the rest of creation. This shines the spotlight on him to show his, his beauty and superiority and perfection and power. Next, they sing that he is awesome in praises. The word awesome means that he is to be feared. His creatures should be in awe, in wonder, in reverence. And that drives their praises because He works wonders. He performs miracles, marvels to behold. What He accomplishes is full of wonder and awe. For example, verse 12, You stretched out your hand, and the earth swallowed them. The stretching out of His hand is a metaphor for taking action. And at taking action, the earth opened up, as it were, and swallowed the Egyptians. The things that God does, the demonstrations of his power, are not cheap magic tricks. No, he demonstrates his power over creation, and that strikes fear into the heart. And then verse 13 expresses that what makes the exodus of Israel a demonstration of his uniqueness is that it was accomplished by his loving kindness and his strength. Loving kindness is hesed, God's unilateral, unconditional commitment to work on behalf of his people. It is a loyal love that is seeking only the good of the person being loved. But God is not just sentimental, combined with power the Lord is able to fulfill His chesed love and accomplish all of His good purposes in leading and guiding His people wherever He wants them to go. So Yahweh is unique. He is distinct. He is unlike all other so-called gods and everything and anyone else in creation. He is the matchless warrior. Well, consider the fourth stanza, which celebrates the Lord as the terrorizing warrior. The terrorizing warrior. Look at verses 14 to 17. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, or Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased, you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, where you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. When people see what God can do and they realize they are powerless against him, they are terrified and it causes paralysis. Notice how verses 14 to 16 are in the past tense. This is likely what's called a prophetic future. 
they are projecting how the inhabitants of Canaan will respond when they hear about what the Lord has done. And that is exactly how they responded 40 years later. Remember when the two spies went into Jericho and Rahab uh, hid the spies, she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And this is 40 years later. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you have utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted away and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For Yahweh, your, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So the inhabitants of Canaan and Moab had had 40 years to expect and anticipate their destruction of this powerful God. Notice how the terms used to describe the impact of Yahweh's victory here in this passage. Verse 14, they sing of trembling and anguish. Verse 15, of dismay and trembling and melting away. Verse 16, of terror and dread and being motionless. These terms speak of the inner and outer man responses of fear. The, the soul, the inner man, responds with anguish and dismay and dread, which results in the outer man, the body, quaking and shaking and losing strength and being unable to escape or attack. It's just stunned, frozen, unable to move. How else can you respond when confronted with a powerful wrath of God. With, with a God as powerful as Yahweh, you can't escape. And your efforts to attack are pointless. Now, in truth, the right response is to submit and bow. But in the rebellion, when God's enemies come face to face with God's great power, like plastic before fire, they just melt away. And it's because of that state of terror that Israel will be able to conquer the land of Canaan. That's what they celebrate there in the end of verses 16 into 17. Until your power pass over, your people uh, pass over, O Lord, until your people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Israel sings here because having witnessed the power of God, they now know that no enemy can stand against them and they will soon find themselves in the promised land. So in defeating the Egyptians, the, the Lord not only conquered that nation, but that victory weakened the Canaanites and guaranteed Israel's future. We'll look at the closing line, verse 18. Yahweh shall reign forever and ever. Why is this one just one line? Well, I don't know, but I'm guessing they repeated it over and over and over again. This final statement that ends this song is the celebratory declaration that Yahweh is the reigning warrior and his reign will never end. Our God, Yahweh, is the supreme warrior. The I Am is the omnipotent warrior. He is the matchless warrior. He is the terrorizing warrior. No one can compare with Him. No one can threaten His rule. No one can overpower Him. And as such, the reign of the warrior king will last forever and ever. It is secure. His throne is established in the heavens. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 47 verse 2 declares, For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great King over all the earth. 
And because the Lord is king over all, Psalm 115, which compares Yahweh to the false idols of man, it says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. What does our God find pleasure in? He delights in fulfilling his promises to provide for, care for, and bless his people. And when necessary, he will fight for them. Beloved church, what can we draw from this for our lives today? Surely we can't expect for God to just kill our enemies. He will. Revelation 19 says, And I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. That's Jesus. When he comes to establish his kingdom on the earth, he will destroy all of his enemies who have, at that point, come against Jerusalem. So we can be assured that the wicked will ultimately be destroyed by our warrior king. Until then, the lesson for us is really an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God can so powerfully defeat the armies who stand opposed to his purposes, how much easier is it for him to protect and fight for us when we have people set against us. Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When we are sinned against, when we are slandered, when we're unjustly treated, when we are opposed, it's not always necessary to defend ourselves. It's not necessary to work overtime to try and stop the spread of slander. It's not even possible to try and correct everybody's opinion about you. And it's certainly never right to repay evil for evil and exact revenge. We need to give room for the Lord to defend and protect according to his will. On the cross... Jesus modeled for us that when our trust is in the Lord, the whole world can be set against us, and yet we can love our enemies and endure suffering if that is God's will. Knowing that the Lord will deal with our enemies in His way and in His time. So when you're threatened or when wrong is done to you, before you weigh your options on how you should respond in that moment, fix in your mind that the Lord is a warrior who can fight for you, especially when you are powerless in the situation. There's a man named A.W. Tozer who once said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This song that Moses wrote and Israel sang represents wonderful truths that came to their minds based on what they had just learned about God as he fought for them. It wasn't that much longer as they stood ready to go into the land, waiting for the report of those spies. And when that report came, they decided... Our God can't do this. He's not powerful enough to defeat these Canaanites. They had completely forgotten God. And so God judged them and the next generation the Lord used to conquer the land. If you know anything about the history of Israel, as you read through scripture, you know that time and time and time again, they forgot that God is a warrior. They trusted in themselves. They trusted in other nations. They would hire Egypt to come fight for them. They would hire others to come fight for them. And time and time again, the Lord would say, why won't you just trust me and let me 
fight. There were times when God did that. There were times when Israel did that. And God responded by fighting for them. But there were many times when they didn't and God judged them. How forgetful we too can be. And so we fight. We argue. We send letters. We write emails. We do all kinds of things to try and fight and win. We need to remember that the Lord is a warrior. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that while the Lord revealed himself as Yahweh, the I am most powerfully in the Old Testament through the defeat of the Egyptians. That display of his glory comes in second. Behind the revelation of God's power and glory. In defeating his enemies at the cross. In the moment when Jesus appeared to be at his weakest state. He exerted infinite strength by staying on the cross. In his death, burial, and resurrection, he delivered a death blow to Satan and his demons. He won victory over death. He paid for the sins of those who would believe. He justified the ungodly. He reconciled us to God. He guaranteed our resurrection and he secured our eternal life. The victory of the Egyptian, over the Egyptians was so significant that God instituted the Passover so that the Jews who were to celebrate it every year would remember and celebrate the freedom accomplished by Yahweh. But the night that he was betrayed and arrested, as the disciples were having celebrating the Passover, Jesus replaced that feast, the Passover feast, with this ordinance. With the early church, which the early church called the Lord's Feast, or as it's translated, the Lord's Supper. So every time we take this meal, which commemorates through symbolism the, the death of Christ, we're celebrating our God, the warrior who conquered his enemies. Some he conquered by securing their final end like the fallen angels and unbelievers, the unelect. Some he conquered by reconciling us to himself, adopting us into his family and making us his own. This is our God, the warrior. Let's pray. As I pray, the men can come to serve the supper. Our God, it's overwhelming to think about these acts, these displays of your power. We are so familiar with them. We've read them. If we grew up in the church, we've heard the stories. We've seen the pictures. And yet we understand that it's far different for us than for those who were there. For the Israelites who experienced the sheer terror thinking they were about to die. And yet, upon witnessing your deliverance, celebrated with exuberant joy. And the same is true of the death of Christ. It's hard for us to imagine what it would have been like to be there. How would we have responded? And so we need your help, Holy Spirit, to illumine our hearts and minds, to help us to see Christ in all of his glory, so that we develop and cultivate the fear of the Lord as our hearts are shaped by your majesty and your power. Lord, we confess how often we forget that you are a warrior. And we think we could do better for ourselves. Forgive us for that. Help us to be a people who are 
reflectors of the love of Christ who even loved his enemies when he was being put to death by them. And may this remembrance, as we take this meal together, would it stir in our heart the desire to know you more, to live for you, to glorify you because of what you've done for us. In Christ's name, amen.